and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Happy, Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Oh, it's so... Bring it in 2019 in uh, style. Ring a ding ding. I hope you all are are not hungover. Oh, I mean, yeah. Let's be honest. We're, we're in our all, 30s. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's super smart. You'd like drink some Gatorade at yep. 9 p.m. And then at midnight, you watch the ball drop and you went, all right, that's enough. That was that. <laughs> Can you imagine like being in Times Square oh, on no. purpose for New Year's? Absolutely not. That sounds like, ho- it sounds <sighs> horrible. And then, you know, when we wa- when we watch New Year's Rock and Eve, like you yeah. and I do. With Mr. Worldwide. With Mr. Worldwide. Oh, I love Pitbull. Um <laughs> There's always like branding, like, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know, Twitter like gives out vuvuzelas or something to like the crowd. So they always have these things to like wave at the cameras or whatever. Yeah. It just seems cheap. You know, it cheapens New Year's. You're the Jimmy Dean sausage bangers. (laughs) (laughs) Ring in 2019 with the Jimmy Dean sausage bangers. Uh, We are recording this ahead of time, but you guys, if there are Jimmy Dean sausage bangers (laughs) at Times Square this year. I need some residuals. I'm going to need, we're going to need some residuals. We did this before. (laughs) Um, Yes. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, We hope that your 2019 is as good or better. Off to a good start. Off to a great start. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We just had our holiday. um, uh, I survived the holidays from the tags. So that was fun. It was loud. I think I'm partially deaf now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were kind enough to make me this hot gin and tonic. Yeah. Brought that back from England. It's delicious. I'm really enjoying it. Tell the people what's in it while I sip. Um, Here we go. Well, it's one part London dry gin, Mm. one part slow gin, which, by the way, is not really gin. This was a new thing to me. Yeah. Um, It's just made from the slow berry, S-L-O-E, which apparently is a relative of the plum. Sure. Unclear. Sounds like a droop. Um, the recipe calls for tonic syrup, but okay. uh, can't find that in America no. anywhere. <laughs> so we just used regular tonic and then topped off with hot water and an orange slice. Super, super delicious. It is so warming. And we are not paid for by the hot gin and tonic lobby. <laughs> this is just because we enjoy the Big product. Big hot gin. Big hot gin. <laughs> Big hot gin. Enjoy your tape. Big Hot Gin with some Jimmy Dean sausage bangers. <laughs> Wow, 2019, we were like, bada boom, bada boom, money coming in. Advertisers, advertisers. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, guys, remember us when we were small. Remember us before we made all this money. Um, So uh, in the new year, quick story, quick story about my topic. All right. So in the new year, I was... um, (laughs) I was thinking about topics. I was like, what should I do next and blah, blah, blah. And I was uh, going to order some cedar for C- Steve and I. So mm-hmm. I like Googled cedar when I was out. I was like coming back from the gym or whatever. And I Googled cedar and I was like trying to find their phone number. <laughs> it's a Mediterranean restaurant around here. And uh, for some reason, Google suggested, did you mean choke pair? Parentheses <laughs> torture device. <laughs> I was like, what? Google? I know. I was like, and I actually screenshotted it and circled it and sent it to Steve like, I need to stop Googling Who horrifying has been things. Messing with your internet I know. browsing history. So then I thought, ooh, what if I did torture devices for my next topic, right? So I, you know, I settle in, and you know, you know, I'm ghoulish. Like I love, I love that shit. I love like people's faces coming off. And I like, like I like it in like terms of this happened 800 years ago. Absolutely. And that's why I thought torture devices would be like Pat, like we're talking about like the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no one expects that. So I was like, that. great. I go on to Wikipedia where I start all of my research so that I can, you know, I do the I do the reading like a quick read and then yeah. I go into the references and that's when I do like mm-hmm. my heavy duty research. I had to close the window. It was too much <sighs> for me. I was like getting lightheaded. Yeah. I was like, oh no, oh no. So Unfortunately, my friends, we will not be doing a topic on torture devices anytime soon. And I know I'm, I know that I am disappointing a lot of people. Because you know what? They were just, they were just waiting for, (laughs) for our ladies trivia podcast to (laughs) 
to cover Talk this. Talk about the choke pair. There aren't enough murder podcasts being out there. Broken on the wheel. Oh lord. By the way, the broken on the wheel What's is the not the one big that's deal. the that's the thing they put inside. <laughs> Never mind. No, inside your is it, yeah yeah. And then they and then it goes. That's well. No, the choke pair is that they put it in your mouth and uh-huh. then it goes. And then it tears you up. The other one is um, no. What you're thinking of a terrible of is, name. I know. It that sounds like you know. It sounds like Ring of Destiny, but it's like it's yeah. The it's like pair the, of humiliation the, the, or something. <laughs> the the peach of sadness. I don't know, but yeah, they put it. How did we get here? Kabam. Oh, anyway, no. I'm sorry. So we're not doing torture devices. So we're not going to talk about it anymore. Sorry, everybody. Um, so I decided to do my continue with my part two of my art. <laughs> Yeah, thing. Great. No, I know, but you know, like I can do I a part we two at a different time. Yeah. Um, and I was gonna do three artists, but I got started on Van Gogh, and then it, it he's there's just it's such a rich uh, soil yes. for stories. So um, today I'm doing what are you some kind of Rembrandt part two the Van Goghing. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let me start this off by saying Please. we our your art episode has been out for a couple weeks mm-hmm. now. Not a single person has said to us, "Yeah, I say, what are you some kind of red rant?" <laughs> no, I forgot to tell you. My dad <laughs> My dad corrected me. He said, "No, that's not the phrase." Okay. I said, "Okay, what is it?" He goes, "What do you think you're some kind of Rembrandt?" <laughs> I don't know. I said no. Nope, that makes it any better. That's still not or a phrase. More clear. Still not a phrase, Dave. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, yeah. You know what? I think I made that up. <laughs> so he admitted it that regardless of what the phrase actually is, this phrase he made up. What are you, some kind of Rembrandt, or what do you think you're, some kind of Rembrandt? <laughs> you got to put the emphasis in different places. <laughs> Sounds like Don Rickles. I know. It's a very vaudevillian, weird, like, borscht belt patois that my father does when he's joking. I don't get it. Either way. Pa-art. Pa-art de, de the Van Goghing. All right, here we go. Great. So, to begin with, Marley was dead. hey yo! I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> I hit a mouthful of hot gin! <laughs> And it almost went out your nose. It was great. I'm Which sorry. Which I'm enjoying with my side of Jimmy Dean sausage bangers. Make <laughs> your Dean- day a banging one. <laughs> Jimmy Dean sausage bangers. Find them at your local Wegmans. Um, Van Gogh is, if I was to pronounce it correctly, in Dutch it would be Van Gogh. Right? And if it was in French, uh, I would say Van Gogh. Yeah, both awful. So I will not be I will not be pronouncing his last name correctly. Okay, great. I'll be calling him Van American Gogh because we're in America. Yeah, yes. Sorry, France. Stars and stripes. Van Gogh. It is because um, I'm an art historian, but I'm not that kind of art historian. So there you go. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Vincent Willem Van Gogh was born on March 30th, 1853, in the Southern Netherlands. He was the oldest surviving child of Theodorus Van Gogh, a minister of the Dutch Reformed Church, and Anna Cornelia Carbentus. Uh, Van Gogh was given the name of his grandfather and of a brother stillborn exactly a year before his birth. So they were just like... Again, there's only three names. Uh, yeah. They were like, okay, well, Vincent dies, so this is Vincent. <laughs> well, I know. Um, his brother Theo was born on May 1st, 1857. And there was another brother, Cor, and three sisters, Elizabeth, Anna, and Wilhelmina, and she was known as Will. Apparently, she was an early feminist. Oh, great. Isn't that cool? Uh, in later life, Van Gogh remained in touch only with Wilhelmina and Theo. Uh, the most comprehensive primary source on Van Gogh is the correspondence between him and his younger brother, Theo, and their lifelong friendship, and most of what is known of Van- Vincent's thoughts and theories of art are recorded in the hundreds of letters they exchanged from 1872 until 1890. Uh, Theo Van Gogh was an art dealer and provided his brother with financial and emotional support and access to influential people on the contemporary art scene. Uh, Theo kept all of Vincent's letters to him. Vincent kept few of the letters he received. After both had died, Theo's widow, Johanna, arranged for the publication of some of their letters. Um, Van Gogh's mother was a rigid and religious woman who emphasized the importance of family to the point of claustrophobia for those around her. Oh. So, huh. yeah, she messed him up. 
something awful. Uh, Van Gogh was a serious and thoughtful child, and he later wrote that in his youth was austere and cold and sterile. Aww. So uh, in July 1869, Van Gogh's uncle sent, which is short for Vincent. Gotcha. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's he obtained a three names. I know, just three names. One of which is core, apparently. Um, he, uh, his uncle sent, obtained a position for him at the art dealer's Goopel and C in The Hague. I love that. I know. Isn't that nice? It's charming. Uh, after completing his training in 1873, he was transferred to Goopel's London branch at Southampton Street and took lodgings at 87 Heckford Road, Stockwell. This was a happy time for Van Gogh. He was successful at work. And at 20, he was earning more than his father. Uh, Theo's wife later remarked that this was the best years of Vincent's life. Uh, He became infatuated with his landlady's daughter, Eugenie Lawyer, but was rejected after confessing his feelings, uh, and she was secretly engaged to a former lodger. He grew more isolated and religiously fervent, and his father and uncle arranged a transfer to Paris in 1875, where he became resentful of issues such as the degree to which the firm commodified art and was dismissed a year later. You're going to start to sense a pattern Mm -hmm. In his behavior, one, with women, and two, with working, uh, and just kind of like maneuvering through society like a normal person. So from here on out, our boy Vince, he bounced around a lot, drawing and painting in between jobs and intermittently living with his parents in Eton. Uh, They tried to get him a position as a missionary and a reverend. That wasn't for him. No, nothing stuck. He was actually too religious for the priesthood, apparently. Yeah. Okay. No, that's code for something. Yeah. He did something wrong, and then they were like, sorry. Well, apparently... He's too religious for us. Well, apparently what he did was um, he got a job as like a, as like a, I don't know, a priest in training. I don't know. I'm not Catholic. Or Dutch reform. Um, and he got uh, he got this job, and they're like, all right, this is where you're staying. You're staying above this delicious bakery. Hand to God. That's what... Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to stay in this bakery. I'm going to give my lodgings to this homeless man and I'm going to sleep in a pile of hay in the street. And they were like, "Eh, okay. But he was like too, he was like wacky religious, like flog himself. Just like turn it up to 11. Yeah. Yeah. So the the church elders were like. Pre-cut his own tonsor. (laughs) They were like, like, we don't do that anymore. It's not even, we haven't done that in a hundred years. Yikes. So. Essentially, everybody in Vince's life for his entire 37 years on this planet were basically like, you need to chill out. (laughs) You have some serious... I got a guy. Yeah. Like, you're an intense person. (laughs) And maybe knock it back like two degrees. Just bring it down. But alas, he could not. So, um, yeah, he, he was too religious for the priesthood. So Van Gogh returned to Eton to his parents in April 1881 for an extended stay. And he continued to draw, often using his neighbors as subjects. And in August 1881, his recently widowed cousin, Cornelia Key Vostricker, daughter of his mother's older sister, Wilhelmina, and Johanna Stricker, arrived for a visit. Okay. Sure, his cousin's in town. Oh, yay. 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 He was thrilled and uh, took long walks with her. Perfectly fine. I'm good friends with my cousin, too. That's great. Uh, Key was seven years older than he was and had an eight-year-old son. And Van Gogh surprised everyone by declaring his love to her and proposing marriage. Uh, she refused with the words, no, nay, never. Ooh. It was recorded. Like, oh, in, boy. this is a direct quote. There are yeah. quotation marks around this. They even put it in Dutch. So it was, <laughs> it was like the 19th century version of Twitter. Like, there's a bunch of people around. He's proposing. And then she, like, says that. And they're like... You gotta write this down. I gotta oh send this God. to my Did cousin. You see this? Can you believe this? Oh my gosh! Snapchat, Snapchat, smiley face over her face to protect her anonymity. Um, so he didn't. He wasn't taking that lightly. He was like, mm, "But did did that mean maybe? Did that mean maybe though? I mean, you, you said no three times, right. but I'm hearing a maybe in there." So late in November 1881, Van Gogh wrote a letter to Johanna Stricker, her dad, one which he described to Theo as an attack. Within days, he left for Amsterdam. Key would not meet him, and her parents wrote that his persistence is disgusting. And the disgusting was in italics. <laughs> he invented like, that. They were, I did, they did not like that. So in despair, he held his left hand in the flame of a lamp with the words, let me see her for as long as I can keep my hand in the flame. 
just take it easy. Like, good Lord. So he did not recall the event well, but later assumed that his uncle had blown out the flame. And Key's father made it clear that her refusal should be heeded and the two would not marry, largely because of Van Gogh's inability to support himself. So her dad was like... (laughs) You really shouldn't marry this guy. Not because he's a crazy person, but because, you know what? He just doesn't make a good living. Right. I don't think that would be great yeah, for be you. would a good and match. Wouldn't be a good match. So then his cousin, artist Anton Mauve, took Van Gogh on as a student and introduced him to watercolor, which he worked on for the next month before returning home for Christmas. Uh, but within a month, Van Gogh and Mauve fell out, possibly over the viability of drawing from plaster casts. I don't know. It's an artist thing. Van Gogh could afford to hire only people from the streets as models, a practice of which uh, Mauve seemed to have disapproved. Uh, soon after, he first painted in oils, bought with money borrowed from Theo, which is also a seemed to be a thing. Mm. Um, he liked the medium and spread the paint liberally, scraping from the canvas and working back with the brush. He wrote that he was surprised at how good the results were. Uh, there was an interest from a dealer in Paris in early in 1885, and Theo asked Vincent if he had paintings ready to exhibit. And in May, Van Gogh responded with his first major work, which is known as The Potato Eaters. The Potato Eaters. The Potato Eaters. You mm-hmm. know of The Potato mm-hmm. Eaters, yes. Um, and a series of peasant character studies, which were the culmination of several years of work. Um, when he complained that Theo was not making enough effort to sell his paintings in Paris, his brother responded that they were too dark and not in keeping with the bright style of Impressionism. And in August, his work was publicly exhibited for the first time in the shop windows of the dealer Lures in The Hague. So... <clears throat> Uh, Van Gogh like intermittently would like take classes and artwork and he actually went to an academy once and he like dropped out and came back and all this stuff. So at one point he was at um, an art school and one of the art teachers was like, here, you got to draw this classical statue of a naked torso with no head or arms, like go to town. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like sketching dutifully. And so Van Gogh instead does the naked torso of a peasant woman a very like voluptuous peasant woman and the art teacher comes over and he was like that's not what i'm talking about and so he like corrects his lines with a crayon and he was so intense with it that he actually tore the paper okay so van gogh friggity freaks Mm -hmm. and he violently screams at him and he says you clearly do not know what a young woman is like god damn it a woman must have hips buttocks a pelvis in which she can carry a baby and then according to accounts at the time well not accounts at the time but like later he basically like screamed and like ran out of the room never to return do you think that was all in dutch Yes, it was probably in It Dutch. was probably very frightening. It then. was probably very guttural. <laughs> a lot of... A lot of... <laughs> <laughs> but like louder and angrier. Um, but apparently, in truth, he managed to calm down, I guess, and stayed there for another month. And then he got kicked out because they made him repeat a class oh, and he yeah. refused to do it. So mm-hmm. they were like, okay, no, thank you. Um, but again, he just can't seem to just talk just like a normal go with the flow <laughs> yeah. like a normal ass guy not a real easy going yeah certainly not not a rule follower no per se def defo defo not so yeah so in in that november in uh 1885 he moved to antwerp and he lived in poverty and ate poorly preferring to spend the money theo sent him on painting materials and models uh bread coffee and tobacco became his staple diet <clears throat> One of those things is not food. Just FYI. (laughs) One of those three things is not food. Uh, In February 1886, he wrote to Theo that he could only remember eating six hot meals since the previous May. Yeah. So what's Theo thinking about all this? Theo. Is he worried? Is he like, is he like brother dear? Yeah. Why don't you come live in my, in my attic? Well, you'll see. Okay. Um, They were best, best friends. And I think he had a lot of affection and love for his brother. And I think he really was frustrated by him. But Mm -hmm. he saw that, I mean, he was his greatest champion his whole life. Like he thought his brother was like the most amazing artist who ever lived. And everybody else was like, this guy, really? Um, Who draws like peasants and lumpy people. No one likes lumpy people, especially lumpy people eat potatoes. So... Theo was like the best friend he ever had. But yeah, he made him crazy. Like in his letters, he was like, just be chill, bro. Literally, (laughs) just be chill. Um, So yeah, his um, 
Vincent's teeth also became loose and painful, mostly because of the... Because he's, <laughs> he's eating, he's ingesting tobacco. He's literally and, eating with, tobacco. And downing it with just oh, black coffee. This poor man. So in Antwerp, he applied himself to the study of color theory and spent time in museums, particularly studying the work of Peter Paul Rubens. Okay. So he broadened his palette to include carmine, cobalt blue, and emerald green. So he's like, color, what a Colors. thing. Colors. So... Van Gogh bought Japanese yukioi woodcuts in the Docklands, later incorporating elements of their style in the background of some of his paintings. So there's like a Japanese woodblock quality to a lot of his earlier okay. stuff, which is really interesting. And that's why um, a lot of it has like kind of a flat quality to it. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of beautiful with like the bright color palette. <clears throat> um, he was also drinking heavily again. <laughs> And he was hospitalized between February and March 1886, which where he was possibly also treated for, say it with me, Gonorrhea. syphilis. Oh, we're, we're going to get, get it one day. We're going to get it one of these days. Damn it. Gonorrhea felt felt right. Well, you know what? You're not wrong because he was also treated for gonorrhea <laughs> okay. at a at a later date. Okay. I'll yeah. give you a heads up. When 1880s that just feels, feels, just feels like mm, gonorrhea to feels me. Feels like a gonorrhea. Feels like the clap. <laughs> That's the one is the clap, right? Am I right? I think so. I mean, I haven't talked about STDs in any real way since high school. So <laughs> knock wood. Woo. What's in this hot gin? Anyway. So uh, in, a- in March 1886, he moved to Paris where he shared Theo's Rue Laval apartment in Montmartre and studied at Fernand Cormand Studios. So he lived with Theo at this point. In Paris, he began the acquaintance of many other artists of the period, including Toulouse-Lautrec and Georges Seurat. Uh, and here is where he begins his more colorful, vibrant work that defines his oeuvre. Uh, and at the end of 1886, Theo found living with Vincent to be, quote, almost unbearable. Oh. <clears throat> By early 1887, they were again at peace and Vincent had moved to, oh, Asnieres? Asnieres, Asnieres. Spell that for me. A-S-N-I-E, uh, accent, R-E-S. Asnieres. Asnieres. Uh, a northwest suburb of Paris, <laughs> where he got to know Paul Signac. Uh, he adopted elements of Signac's signature pointillism. As you may or may not know, Georges Seurat is known for his pointillism, which is a series of different colored dots. A day in the park. Yes. Uh, Le Grand Jat. Yes. Um, so he uh, saw Georges Seurat and Paul Signac working on pointillism, and he was like, I got to get me a piece of that. All right. All right. Um, which was a technique in which a multitude of small colored dots are applied to the canvas so that when seen from a distance, they create an optical blend of hues. See, when you mentioned Toulouse-Lautrec, it made me think that like they probably got along. Yeah, Toulouse-Lautrec actually uh, painted him at one point. Oh. Um, but I think Van Gogh was just too sad. Mm. He didn't... Um, he wasn't like a jolly cabaret he w- goer. No, he wasn't like a good time guy. Mm-hmm. I think he had a lot of anxiety and a lot of paranoia. And, uh, which is a sad guy. Mm. And he, I think he got the sense that people, other people, other artists weren't as serious about art as he was. Like they were too much like good time people. Mm -hmm. And he was like, no, I like, I want to be a really good artist. And they were like, yeah, okay, weirdo. But first let's go drinking. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So, um, so that was again, one of Van Gogh's burdens. Uh, so here is when Gauguin comes into the play. Okay. So this guy, uh, in November, 1887, Theo and Vincent befriended Paul Gauguin, who had just arrived in Paris. And in February, 1888, feeling worn out from life in Paris, Van Gogh left having painted more than 200 paintings during his two years there. That's a lot of painting. Yeah. He can't do anything half or even norm. It goes a hundred, a hundo, if you will. Um, so ill from drink and suffering from smoker's cough in February, 1888, Van Gogh sought refuge in Arles. He seems to have moved with thoughts of founding an art colony. Like he was like, oh, okay. I'm, it's going to be me and my bros and we're going to be painting all the time. Uh, so the time in Arles became one of Van Gogh's most prolific periods. He completed 200 paintings and more than 100 drawings and watercolors. Uh, he was enchanted by the local landscape and light. And his works from this period are rich in yellow, ultramarine and mauve. Actually, yellow was Van Gogh's favorite color um, because he saw it as like his own personal representation of God and light and holiness and beauty and purity. So yellow was like his shit. So like the sunflowers. Yes, the sunflowers. And a lot of his later work when he was like really deep Mm -hmm. into his mental illness, there's a lot of yellow. Um, And it's like straight yellow right out of the tube. Like very bright, very intense cadmium yellow. 
Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his uh, use of paint in a bit. Oh, because he ate it. Uh, in May in May 1888, uh, he moves into what is now known as the Yellow House, which was a mostly unfurnished set of rooms he rented as a studio and a home. Uh, some of his most important works, including Bedroom at Arles, The Night Cafe, Cafe Terrace at Night, Starry Night Over the Rhone, and Still Life, Vase with 12 Sunflowers, which is the famous Still Life, were all created as decorations for the Yellow House. And he called oh. them his decorations for the Yellow House. Aww. He painted 30 paintings. And they were all just fun studies of things that he liked to paint just to have decoration in his house yeah, that he that could show cafe people. Yeah, at night one is, it's fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, um, it, this is when he was like very, like really getting into his Van Gogh-ness, you know, like okay. these big swirls of color and these beautiful, like contrasting colors, blue and orange next to each other that were like really kind of made the eye dance around the painting. Um, so that's the stuff. This is the time period where he was like, really showing off his stuff. So um, after much pleading from Van Gogh, Gauguin arrived in Arles in October. And in November, the two painted together. Uh, Van Gogh hoped for friendship and the realization of his idea of an artist collective. Um, but their relationship began to deteriorate. So Gauguin. I'm going to do a little side note on Gauguin mm-hmm. here. Please. So this guy, this guy, Gauguin, Paul Gauguin. So he was the descendant of like, a very wealthy Peruvian woman and he lived in Peru when he was a child and then the government was overthrown and for some reason like the primitivism of Peru like really got stuck in his craw and even though he spent his entire like upbringing in Paris as like a super rich fancy boy he was like no I have to go back to the jungles so he married a Dutch woman and tried to sell tarps in in the Netherlands tarps he was a tarp salesman tarpaulin salesman yes a tarpaulin salesman I shit you not. Well, I mean, you need I mean, a tarp. they gotta get sold too, you know. But he was bad at it because he didn't speak a word of Dutch, and no one spoke French, and no one wanted French tarps. They were like, "We got our Dutch tarps." So he was like, "Forget this. I'm leaving my wife and my kids, and I'm going to Tahiti." Yeah, because I want to find me a nice, primitive teenage girl to paint and marry and have lots of half gaugans all over Tahiti in the islands. So he would go back and forth to Tahiti and he was all about like primitivism and like, oh, they're so pure. They're so naked. They love the earth. Like they're so close to God because they're so brown. I mean, I don't know. It was like he he was awful. and Very bright colors. Yes, very bright colors, very flat bodies. Um, a lot of very sexualized young women. He was a very important painter. I mean, he was a very important painter. What was painter. that... Um uh, the two girls that like when will they marry or something it is like the highest selling painting ever oh at yes auction. um yes it's uh who where are they now where are they going who is it's got like three questions okay. in the title i'll post it um but it's huge it's in the boston museum it's like across an entire gallery wall it's just enormous and he spent years and years and years painting it and actually there is a very famous Gauguin in the Albright Knox art gallery in Buffalo oh. New York called the Yellow Christ in his earlier uh, period when he was trying to do find primitivism or primitive people in Europe so he like really fell in love with the Breton mm-hmm. um, and he was like "Ooh, they're so primitive they wear I don't know hats. things on their heads yeah they wear like Dutch hats like oh my god they're so primitive and then they weren't primitive enough because they used like modern technology. And he was like, I'm off to Tahiti. So he was a jerk. <laughs> and he really took advantage of Van Gogh and Van Gogh's like obsession with him. Okay. Because at the time, Gauguin was like the tits. And Van Gogh was like, teach me your ways. Come to my house. Like, come over. We can paint together. How much fun will that be? And Gauguin was like, all right, I guess. Whatever. Can I go to the beach? <laughs> so their relationship began to deteriorate <laughs> because they're awful. Uh, Van Gogh admired Gauguin and wanted to be treated as his equal, but Gauguin was arrogant and domineering, which frustrated Van Gogh, and they often fought, and Van Gogh increasingly feared that Gauguin was going to desert him and the situation, which Van Gogh described as one of excessive tension, rapidly headed toward crisis point. You may know where I'm going with this. So, the exact sequence of events which led to Van Gogh's mutilation of his ear is not known. Uh, Gauguin stated 15 years later... 
uh, that the knight followed several instances of physically threatening behavior and their relationship was complex and Theo may have owed money to Gagan, who was suspicious that the brothers were exploiting him financially. Okay. So it seems likely that Van Gogh had realized that Gagan was planning to leave. And the following days um, saw heavy rain. It was really raining. And so they were both kind of like locked into this yellow mm-hmm. house, which made it worse. And so Gagan reported that Van Gogh followed when Gagan left the house for a walk and he rushed toward me an open razor in his hand. Um, this account is uncorroborated. Gagan was almost certainly absent from the yellow house that night, most likely in a hotel. Uh, Either way. Hmm. There was an altercation with Gaugan. Whether or not he th- physically threatened him is a question, but probably not. Okay. But Van Gogh returned to his room in despair, uh, where he was assaulted by voices and severed his left ear with a razor, either wholly or in part. <clears throat> Accounts differ, yes. Causing severe bleeding, as you know. You cut your face or your head, just full of blood. <sharp inhale> your head is just full of blood. Um, and it's bad. So he bandaged the wound and wrapped the ear in paper... <laughs> Poor guy. And he delivered the package to a woman at a brothel Van Gogh and Gaugan both frequented. Um, And he was like, "Mm, keep this safe for me. He was like, just hang on to it. And then he went home. Um, And so he was found unconscious the next morning by a policeman and taken to the hospital where Dr. Felix Ray, a young doctor still in training, treated him. Uh, The ear was delivered to the hospital, but Ray did not attempt to reattach it as too much time had passed. Yeah, I feel like the story that people hear is that he was in love with this with this sex worker and so he cut off his ear and gave it to her is like the tall tale oh yeah which i mean half right i guess i mean he gave it to her he gave it to her because he trusted her Uh uh-huh he was in his in his mental breakdown he was like oh no look what i did i should probably hey someone should hang on to this and not me so i can't be trusted i cannot be trusted with this whole or part of mine own ear sorry (laughs) I just saw Julia's eyeballs like roll around in her skull. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Okay, everybody. I won't stick to it. Do we know what happened to it? I mean, I, they probably threw it away, I guess. Okay. Because it feels, I mean, it feels like that's a thing that somebody would have seen some value in and it's been floating around bars in Paris for the last 48 years. <laughs> it's like tacked the wall like a dollar. You yeah, know, like the people like put the dollars on the wall. Like that guy's toe in that bar. Yeah. The, the, the drink the toe. You're right. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, well, he wasn't famous. Like he what? He wasn't right. famous, and yeah. he was just a crazy guy who happened to paint. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the doctor was like, uh, and just tossed it away. So no, uh, Van Gogh's severed ear has been lost to time and space. Alas, <sighs> too bad. We really missed out. So Van Gogh had no recollection of the event, uh, suggesting that he may have suffered an acute mental breakdown. Uh. You think? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the hospital diagnosis was acute mania with generalized delirium. I mean, that's <laughs> most Fridays. <A> perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> diagnosis, I would say. Um, and within a few days, the local police ordered that he be placed in hospital care. So uh, Gaugan immediately notified Theo, who on Christmas Eve uh, had proposed marriage to his old friend's sister, Johanna. So he just got engaged and then he gets a call from Gaugan and Gaugan's like, you should probably come see your brother. Bye. He's bleeding. I'm getting on a boat. Openly from the head. Yeah. Um, that evening, Theo rushed to the station to board a night train to Arles and he arrived on Christmas day and comforted Vincent who seemed to be semi lucid. That evening he left Arles for the t- return trip to Paris. Um, so during his first days of treatment, Van Gogh repeatedly and unsuccessfully asked for Gaugan, who asked a policeman attending the case to be kind enough, Monsieur, to awaken this man with great care. And if he asks for me, tell him I have left for Paris. The sight of me might be proof fatal for him. So he was like, I'm not here. Nobody tell him. So he fled Arl never to see Van Gogh again. Like left his friend. What a sociopath. I know. Uh, they continued to correspond, though. Like, they kept writing letters. And in 1890, Gaugan proposed that they form a studio in Antwerp, which is like, come on. Let him go. Let him go. Let the man live. He did the same thing. And also, years later, he said, oh, I taught Van Gogh everything he knows. Mm-hmm. Like, I was the one who was like, you know, you should paint a starry night. And uh, he was like, oh, my God, <laughs> Paul. That is so genius. No and one I was has like, ever thought Yavi, of that before. Yeah. Yavi, I'm the best. And he did the same thing with... I think Renoir he was like you you know who taught him to paint those little girls right me which makes more sense actually but anyway <laughs> so 
Despite a pessimistic diagnosis, Van Gogh recovered and returned to the Yellow House in January 1889. He loved his little yellow house. It was his favorite place. Did he paint the house? He did paint the house. Um, I think it's called View from a Street, but it is called the Yellow House. Mm. And um, it's a yellow house. I mean, it's a nice little street scene. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Uh, He spent the following months between hospital and home, suffering from hallucinations and delusions of poisoning. So this is when he starts eating paint. So... um, the painting thing is not, um, what's I'm looking for? It's not like super common knowledge, but a lot, there's like an apocryphal story that, oh, Van Gogh ate paint to make himself feel better because it was the paint, like the bright colors that like lifted his spirits. And he felt that if he could like somehow consume it, it's probably the heavy metals. It is the heavy metals. That's, that's very bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but in fact he did not cause okay. he, it wasn't like a, it it wasn't in like moments of lucidity. Like he was in a severe mental episode and he would just eat things. And uh, I mean, cigarette butts and whatever was lying around. And a lot of times because he was a painter and because he was usually shut up in a studio, he would eat paint. And in the power of art, which I've mentioned in my last one, Simon Shama, you should probably look it up, but there is a, an episode with Van Gogh. And it's um, Weedfield with Crows is the artwork that they focus on, and I'll okay. talk about it in a bit. But Andy Circus, the great mocap actor, uh-huh. Andy Circus, plays Van Gogh. Oh, wow. And the the way that the Power of Art series kind of works is that the, uh, Simon Shama focuses on one piece of artwork from one artist, mm-hmm. and he kind of tells the story around it. But each episode is like its own little gem. So like one episode will be about Picasso, but no one plays Picasso. Like it's just basically Simon Shama talking over like paintings and like some street scenes of, you know, Spain and Mm -hmm. Paris. Uh, But with Van Gogh, it was Andy Serkis in a room in his studio, actually like quoting direct lines from Van Gogh's writings to his brother Theo. And it's very moving and it's very beautiful. And it, the scene where he eats the paint. Is it like, oh. is it like tube of toothpaste style? Like it is tube of toothpaste style. He just takes it and just like. Uh, it's more of a, it's more of a, he sees the, it's a quiet moment. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm talking about Andy Circus here, yeah. not Van Gogh. But he sees the, the paint and he's like very sad. And he grabs it and he like shoves, 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 shoves it into his mouth. And he starts laughing and then he starts crying and it's very sad, um, but it is just, just an incredible piece of acting from British actor CBE Andy Circus. I think he's got a CBE. I don't know. Yeah, most people do at this I know, point. Yeah, I mean half of England, honestly. So um, he's very, very mentally ill, and there isn't a lot of resources for him at this time even though his brother was you know fairly Mm -hmm. upper class and did whatever he could so um so yeah so in march the police closed his house after a petition by 30 townspeople who described him as le faux rue or the red-headed madman yeah or the red fool uh van gogh returned to hospital so uh two months later he left arles and voluntarily entered an asylum in saint remy de provence And around this time, he wrote, sometimes moods of indescribable anguish, sometimes moments when the veil of time and fatality of circumstances seem to be torn apart for an instant. He's like very depressed. So he painted a portrait of Dr. Felix Ray, the the guy Mm -hmm. who saved his ear um, in 1889. And he gave it to him. He was like, this is for you for helping me. Uh, But the doctor, he did not like the painting. He was like, so he used it to repair a chicken coop. (laughs) (laughs) And then he gave it away. He was like, I don't like looking at it. So in 2016, the portrait was housed at the Pushkin Museum of Fine Arts and estimated to be worth over $50 million. (sighs) So way to go, Dr. Ray. Um, Back to Van Gogh. Uh, He entered the St. Paul de Mozal Asylum on uh, May 8th, 1889, accompanied by his carer, Frederick Sal who was a Protestant clergyman. His brother, Theo, was like, I can't be there. Could you please just yeah. make sure that my brother is cool? Um, Van Gogh had two cells with barred windows, one of which he used as a studio, which is nice. Um, the clinic and its garden became the main subjects of his paintings, and he made several studies of the hospital's interiors, such as Vestibule of the Asylum and St. Remy in 1889. Some of his works from this time are characterized by swirls, such as the Starry Night, so those big swirls. 
Um, he was also allowed short supervised walks during which time he painted cypresses and olive trees, including olive trees with the alpeel in the background in 1889, cypresses in the same year, and cornfield with cypresses, and country road in Provence by night in 1890. In May 1890, Van Gogh left the clinic in Saint-Rémy to move nearer to both Dr. Paul Gachet and Oversurvaz and to Theo. So Gachet was an amateur painter and had treated several other artists for mental illness. Um, Camille Pissarro had recommended him. And Van Gogh's first impression that Gachet was iller than I am, it seemed to me, or let's say just as much. So... He's also being kind of judgy about his doctor. Uh, during his last weeks at Saint-Rémy, his thoughts returned to memories of the North. So his uh, yes. native Netherlands. And several of the approximately 70 oils painted in as many days in the Eau of Saint-Oise are reminiscent of Northern scenes. And in June 1890, he painted several portraits of his doctor, including portrait of Dr. Gachet and his only etching. In each, the emphasis is on Gachet's melancholic disposition. So in July, Van Gogh wrote that he had become absorbed in the immense plain against the hills, boundless as the sea, delicate yellow. He had first become captivated by the fields in May when the wheat was young and green. In July, he described to Theo the vast fields of wheat under turbulent skies. He wrote that they represented his sadness and extreme loneliness. And that the canvases will tell you what I cannot say in words. That is, how healthy and invigorating I find the countryside. Hmm. Wheatfield with Crows, although not his last oil work, is from July 1890. And Van Gogh scholar Hulsker discussed it as being associated with melancholy and extreme loneliness. And it is very beautiful. Hmm. It's at the Met. And um, it has it's a very, very yellow wheat field and a very, very dark blue sky. And then these big black crows and the perspective of it is really beautiful. Like mm. it's a very strong perspective for him when his landscapes and things tend to be quite short. Yeah. Um, and his lands that one though, like kind of goes on forever. Like you feel like you're standing oh, at the geez. edge of a wheat field. It's very beautiful. And the color in it is so intense. It's really gorgeous. So now we get sad. Oh, on July 27, 1890, age 37, Van Gogh shot himself in the chest with a 35 millimeter revolver. Uh, there were no witnesses, and he died 30 hours after the incident. <gasps> yeah. oh, yep. Geez. Ooh, yep. The shooting may have taken place in the wheat field in which he had been painting, or a local barn. Uh, the bullet was deflected by a rib and passed through his chest without doing apparent damage to internal organs, probably stopped by his spine. He was, I know, he was able to walk back to the Auberge Ravou, where he was attended by two doctors, but without a surgeon present, the bullet could not be removed. The doctors tended to him as best they could, then left him alone in his room, smoking his pipe. Uh, the following morning, Theo rushed to his brother's side, finding him in good spirits, but within hours, Vincent began to fail, suffering from an untreated infection resulting from the wound. He died in the early hours of July 29th. According to Theo, Vincent's last words were, the sadness will last forever. Oh, Jesus. I know. It's awful. Uh, Theo died six months later. And the two are interred uh, at Auversay-Waz, Sir Waz. He was 37. Wow. Yeah. So he painted an enormous amount of paintings. Right. In a little over 10 years. Yeah. Like 202 years. is That's crazy. Yeah. 202 years and altogether. I have this written down here. Um, so in, in just over a decade, he produced 2,100 artworks, 860 of which were oils. And most of the output was in his last two years of life, which is, which is out of control. So we could have a Van Gogh somewhere. Oh, absolutely. He had super prolific, super prolific. So let's talk about a style. I mean, I talked a little bit about a style throughout the whole thing, but what about a style? Early Van Gogh, muddy and dark. Lots of browns, mm-hmm. lots of grays and blacks. And his eating fig- potatoes. Eat, yep, eating Peasants. potatoes. Mud. Yeah. Figural style, lumpy. Potato-like. So once he starts <laughs> once he starts looking at lots of art and really getting into oil paints, he starts to develop his signature style in a real way. And he often used a thick impasto. So like big, thick paint that he would just kind of layer up with a chisel and just kind of layer, layer, layer it up to kind of give like a real three-dimensional quality okay. to his artwork. Take forever to dry. Take forever to dry. Um, and he would paint straight from the tube in order to get his colors right and the intensity to come across. So he didn't really mix his paints a okay. lot. It, like prior to putting it on the canvas, he would kind of mix them on the canvas. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of where his swirls came from and also the influence of pointillism where it was just like, instead of mixing the two colors, he would just place them next to each other. Okay. Um, so that from a distance, you could really get the um, tones mm-hmm. across. 
Um, so the again, the influence of Signac's pointillism really shows in his most famous cell portrait of 1889, um, plus these whirls and swirls that make up the background of the piece. Um, and he wanted to paint reality in a fantastical way. So although he died in poverty and relative anonymity, uh, his most vo- and his most vocal supporter died soon after him, Van Gogh's fame reached its first peak in Austria and Germany before World War I, helped by the publication of his letters in three volumes in 1914. His, uh, so Theo's widow did yes, that. Yes, Johanna, okay. uh, his sister-in-law, um, published their letters in 1911 through 1914. And what's weird is she was like in her 20s and she had just married. She had not only just recently met Van Gogh, but she had just recently met Theo. Like they had just gotten married a couple of months beforehand. She was pregnant. Like, Ah. so she didn't really know these people. And then she has all of a sudden she inherited all this stuff, (laughs) 2000 paintings. And she could have just sat on it or sold it all or whatever. But she did her her former husband good and like mm-hmm. really understood in a short amount of time how important this relationship was to him and how important Van Gogh's work was to him and why she wanted to like put it out in the world instead of just kind of like, eh, whatever, yeah. it's not my responsibility anymore. Um, and it's her efforts. Um, her efforts are why we know Van Gogh as Van Gogh today. Wow. Because otherwise he would have just slipped off into nothing and his artwork would have been destroyed or kind of distributed around Mm -hmm. and no one would know who he was or few would know, I should say. So um, his letters are expressive and literate and have been described as among the foremost 19th century writings of their kind. Uh, These began a compelling mythology of Van Gogh as an intense and dedicated painter who suffered for his art and died young. In 1934, the novelist Irving Stone wrote a biographical novel of Van Gogh's life titled Lust for Life based on Van Gogh's letters to Theo. And this novel in the 1956 film further enhanced his fame, especially in the United States where Stone surmised only a few hundred people had heard of Van Gogh prior to his surprise best-selling book. Hmm. So Van Gogh's nephew and namesake, Vincent Willem Van Gogh, who died in 1978, inherited the estate after his mother's death in 1925. And during the early 1950s, he arranged for the publication of a complete edition of the letters presented in four volumes and several languages. Wow. He then began negotiations with the Dutch government to subsidize a foundation to purchase and house the entire collection. That's some good archive work. So Theo's son participated in planning the project in the hope that the works would be exhibited under the best possible conditions. And the Van Gogh Museum opened in the Museum Plein in Amsterdam in 1973. It became the second most popular museum in the Netherlands after the Rijksmuseum, regularly receiving more than 1.5 million visitors a year. So his most famous pieces, as a lot of people know, but still... Starry Night, Wheatfield with Crows, Sunflowers, Bedroom and Arl, and his portraits, both self and of others. Although he never painted his brother, which is weird. Huh. There are almost, there are no oil paintings of his brother Theo um, or anybody that was like especially close to him. He painted Gauguin. Yeah. Um, but he didn't paint, he didn't paint like close friends or family, which is weird. Interesting. Do we know what mental illness he probably had? Um, we can only speculate. We but. can only speculate, but uh, they think that he had um, bipolar disorder was like an early one. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say that he had like, like porphyria, mm-hmm. which is, and a lot of other people were like, no, it's not porphyria. They think it's just, he had severe depression and anxiety and probably had some like bipolar oh, tendencies okay. and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's just very sad. Yeah. So, uh, so to liven things up, to really get our juices going, uh, my quiz today is called Sunflowers and Starry Nights, a quiz on those big yellow flowers and space. Question number one. Sunflowers exhibit what's known as heliotropism, a behavior in certain plants that causes them to do what? Question number two. True or false, there are only three moons in our inner solar system, and our inner solar system is Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Question number three. This British, not Dutch, artist with a namesake beard style once famously painted himself pointing at the face of a sunflower and pointing at himself with his other hand, subtle, indicating that he was a favorite in the court of Charles I. Who is this painter? Question number four. Tell me, is the object called a supraspinatus in the human body, or is it a celestial body? 
Question number five. Sunflowers are now seen as cheery symbols of the country, but were they first cultivated in Russia or in the United States? Question number six. Astronomers have divided the sky into 88 different constellations, 21 in the Northern Hemisphere, 15 in the Southern Hemisphere, and 12 zodiacal constellations, among others. Can you name all 12 zodiac constellations? Question number seven. Going hand in hand with baseball for nearly 100 years, sunflower seeds are a favorite snack of baseball players and watchers alike. According to JustBats.com, what snack company with a familiar name is one of the best for spitting? Question number eight. Best known for guiding ships for centuries, the North Star was used to pinpoint ships' locations long before the invention of fancy navigational equipment. In what constellation is the North Star located? I will accept either the common or the Greek name. Question number nine. True or false? Sunflowers have been to space. And finally, question number 10. I'm going to name four constellations and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. One, Fornax, the Furnace. Two, Boots, the Herdsman. Third, Schoon, the Scone. And fourth, Coma Berenice's, Bernice's hair. I'll give you a minute to think about it. I'll be right back with answers. All right, here we go. Question number one. Sunflowers exhibit what's known as heliotropism, a behavior in certain plants that causes them to do what? Uh, they grow toward the sun. They do. They follow the sun. Yeah. Um, Great. Other heliotropic plants include alfalfa, cotton, and soybeans. Oh. Uh, plants that move to avoid sunlight are called paraheliotropic. Oh, interesting. So there you go. Question number two. True or false, there are only three moons in our inner solar system. So if you're saying... Mars, Venus, Earth. Mars, Venus, Earth, Mercury. Yes. There are only three. There are only three, yes. Yes. Earth has one, the moon. Mars has two. You mean Luna. Luna, yes, that's true. (laughs) Sorry. Earth has one, Luna. (laughs) Mars has two, Phobos and Deimos. And Mercury and Venus have none. Mm. Sad. It's because they're too close to to the sun. All right. Question number three. This British, not Dutch, artist with a namesake beard style once famously painted himself pointing at the face of a sunflower and pointing at himself with his other hand. Super subtle. Indicating that he was a favorite in the court of Charles I. Who is this painter? He probably would have made that like his online dating picture. Yes, he definitely uh, would. Van Dyke. Yes, that's Anthony Van Dyke. He did a lot of portrait painting in the 17th century. Steve and I have been watching um, Mary Berry's Country House Secrets on, uh, oh my God, you have to watch it. It's Ugh. so good. She spends an hour in like Highclere Castle or mm. Scone Castle and like all this fun stuff. And then she and then she makes like a cockaliki stew and like, <laughs> oh, so good. But um, where was I going with this? Oh, Van Dyke. Yeah. Every time she's like walking through these beautiful houses, I'm like, that's a Lily. That's a Van Dyke. And Steve's like, not every house can have a Lily or a Van Dyke. I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> like they painted a lot. <laughs> yeah. They painted a lot. And they're very distinctive. <laughs> Lily has these big, long faces. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Question number four. Tell me, is the object called a supraspinatus in the human body or is it a celestial body? Can you please spell that for me? It is S-U-P-R-A-S-P-I-N-A-T-U-S. Space? No, it is in the human body. It is a muscle that runs from your collarbone to your shoulder blade and is one of the four rotator cuff muscles. Oh. Who knew? Hmm. 
Uh, question number five. Sunflowers are now seen as cheery symbols of the country, but were they first cultivated in Russia or in the United States? I'll say Russia. Nope. It was the U.S. Sorry. It originated here as far back as 3000 BCE. They were exported to the rest of the world by Spanish conquistadors around 1500. And Tsar Peter the Great was obsessed with them. Okay. Uh, Today, Ukraine and Russia are the leading sunflower seed producers in the world. Yeah, I knew that the sunflower is a symbol of Ukraine, which is why I went with that. It's a good instinct. It's a good instinct. Mm. Okay. Question number six. Astronomers have divided the sky into 88 different constellations, 21 in the northern hemisphere, 15 in the southern hemisphere, and 12 zodiacal constellations, among others. Can you name all 12 zodiac constellations? Yes. Okay. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got me there. Go. Uh, All right. All right. All right. All right. Taurus. Yes. I'm trying to figure out what order to do them in. I mean, I should do them in the right in the right order, but I don't have my mnemonic in front of me for that. That's okay. Um, okay. Taurus, mm-hmm. Cancer, yep. Leo, yep. Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, uh-huh. Sagittarius, yep. Aquarius, yep. Pisces. Yep. Is that ten? Uh yes. Maybe. Um Aries. Yes. And Finally, the favorite of everybody, (laughs) the Gemini. Yes, very good. Excellent, excellent. Question number seven. Going hand in hand with baseball for nearly 100 years, sunflower seeds are a favorite snack of baseball players and watchers alike. According to JustBats.com, what snack company with a familiar name is one of the best for spitting? Ew, David. Yeah, David. Ew, David. David Sunflower Seeds since 1926. Uh, it is avail- They are available in original size and jumbo seeds. Jumbo, jumbo seeds. Jumbo seeds. Well, they're good for spitting. I guess they're, I don't know how big they are. Okay, first of all, full disclosure, I am terrified of sunflowers. They're just so freakishly big. No plant should be that big. And it looks like it's looking at you. You know what I mean? Okay, question number eight. I'm gonna just let everyone else handle this. I'm not gonna. What, I'm not gonna wait. What are you trying to say? One. That. What are you trying to say? Julia. Okay. <laughs> question number eight. Best known for guiding ships for centuries, the North Star was used to pinpoint ships' locations long before the invention of fancy navigational equipment. In what constellation is the North Star located? I will accept either the common or the Greek name. Well, I was gonna say Big Dipper, and then you said Greek name, and I don't have any idea. Uh, it's actually the Little Dipper, uh, and it's Ursa Minor. That's not Greek. Oh, it's not? No. Oh, what is that then? Is that- That's Latin. Latin? Oh, sorry. Fix it. Fix it. <laughs> Fix it in post. <laughs> Fix it. Fix it in post. All right. Question number nine. True or false? Sunflowers have been to space. True. True. Yes. Astronaut Don Pettit brought seas to the ISS in 2012 and blogged about his little space garden. Oh, sweet. Okay. Question number 10. Here's the serious stuff. I'm going to name four (laughs) constellations, and you're going to tell me if they're real or something I made up. You ready? Okay. Fornax, the furnace. Real. Yes. Uh, Number two, Boots, the herdsman. Real. Yeah. Uh, Number three, uh, Schoon, the scone. Fake. Yes, I made that up. Uh, And fourth, Coma Berenice's, Bernice's hair. Fake. No, it's real. It's uh, Bernice's hair. It's something Queen Bernice II of Egypt. She had to cut off her hair to save her husband. And and then the gods took her hair was so beautiful that they were Uh, like, well, we're going to throw it up in the sky and now you can look at it whenever you want, which is not doing her any good because it's no longer on her scalp. But hey, I'm not a Roman god. Who am I? So that was my quiz on sunflowers and space. I will I will probably do a part three because Van Gogh took up all my time. Yeah. I still gotta do I, I was gonna do Gagan, but then I was reading his his info and I was like, he's just makes me Ugh. too mad. He's yeah. insufferable. Plus I touched on him, uh, Tahiti, blah blah blah. Well whatever. I'll, I'll probably do Cezanne Picasso at some point in Matisse. So get ready for that, everybody. Art. Art. Three, p- art, four, as many as as many as you can. There's so many artists. I could just turn this into a half art podcast, I guess. And then I'll teach you history. Yeah, done. 
misinformation <laughs> all the way. Um, uh, if you would like, th- you're listening to this now. Ooh, thank, thank you. you. Um, if you would like to tell anybody about us, uh, we are available on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or use our RSS feed with any podcast app that you prefer. Um, you can also stream us on our website, www.missinfopod.com. And if you'd like to weigh in on Lauren's fear of sunflowers, uh, you can tweet at us. Please do. At Please tell me Info I'm not the only pod. one. Um, we have a Facebook page, Misinformation, colon, a trivia podcast. Um, we have a website. Yeah, we have that website. www.misinfopod.com. I guess Gmail? you can email us too. Yes, you can email us. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I remember to check it. <laughs> sometimes I don't. <laughs> well, if you don't, um, I do. Misinfopod then... at gmail.com. Yep. Um. Also, you could probably text us, I guess, like if you have our numbers. <laughs> if you already. have our numbers, we're not giving those out. You can't. You can't trick us. Five, five, five. <laughs> oh my god. Um. So, uh, thanks for listening, guys. This episode brought to you by Jimmy Dean Sausage Bangers. <laughs> Get your day off to a bang and start. Help your New Year. <laughs> is new as year. banging as your sausage. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>